Last week, Professor Bellarino, Bellarino uh, shared with us some things about the nature of God, love, mercy, remember. And we had a time of question and answers. And I was excited because I'm not sure whether I have given enough time and opportunity for questions during the time that I have been teaching for a few years. So I do want to ask this as we open this morning. And this is not whether I didn't answer well or Matt didn't answer well. It just has to do with you. Do any of you have any other questions or concerns following the presentation that Matt has made, that I have made, that we have made together concerning the person of God, especially concerning the Trinity? Any more questions? Because I know there were a few more things at tables, discuss, and whatever. So anything else do you want to ask anything before we begin? And it's okay. Everybody understands everything clearly. Okay? So no more questions. Oh, you asked some questions during the week? Oh, okay. Great, great, great. So no more questions? No more? That's it? No, I'm ignoring her. How many of you... How, how many of you know this lady? Somebody yell out her name. Kristen Smith. Okay. Her husband's name is Daniel. Okay. Mrs. Smith, what's your question? Can I ask one? Can is what you put worms in. Go ahead. So, when I, when I'm the three in one, that's kind of like messing with me. I know it, but it's like... Is there, like, we'll meet God. Is it, like, three distinct persons up there, or is it, you know, that, that's what's... Okay. Matt, go ahead. That's you. This is what happens when you're late to class. I told, there has to be discipline somewhere. So do you have an answer? I can say something to that. I knew you could. So the question is, when we get to heaven and meet God, will he be three persons? Yes. Uh, As the orthodox understanding is that there are three wills, will centers in the person of God. There's the Father, Son, and Spirit. What that looks like and the dynamic of that and how we interact with that, I have no idea. Yeah. I I have, yeah, I have. Well, I gave, I gave you the chance. We, we, we see from Scripture that there is one God and that there are three persons who are equally God. What that looks like or how we interact with that one being, God, that's three persons, Scripture just doesn't make clear for us. Uh, when we finally leave these fallen bodies we will remember at the return of christ be united 
to a new body. This body, but it will be transformed. You remember what Paul says in the Philippians. These vile bodies will be transformed to be in the likeness of Jesus' own body. As he is physically, we also will be. So we know one thing, that each one of us will stand before a physical man. Okay? We're going to see a man. And this man will have the scars in his wrists, in his feet, in his side. All right, is everybody okay so far? We're going to stand before a man. Now, we're not going to talk about what's going to happen there. That's another subject. So that's what we know, Kristen. That's what we know. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, who is a spirit, he doesn't have a, you know what I mean by a corporal body, a physical body, eyes, ears, feet, etc. God the Father doesn't have a physical body. But in some way, we are going to be in the presence of all three persons of the Godhead and be involved in a fellowship or in the fellowship that these three persons enjoy among themselves, not between themselves, three, among. But what that's going to look like and how that's going to be, I don't know. What we do know is this. There will be a new heaven and a new earth coming together as one. Remember, I saw the new Jerusalem, the whole heaven and earth become one. And God and man, God, the triune God, will now dwell with man. Man will dwell with God. You remember that. And there will be a physical earth. We'll be walking around and doing things and whatever. What will we be doing? I don't know. I don't know whether they'll... No, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek. Please remember what I'm saying, tongue-in-cheek. I don't know whether there'll be a Mardi Gras in the new heaven and the new earth. I don't think there will be Easter egg hunting in the new heaven and the new earth. I, I don't... But what we do know, we will have corporate fellowship with one another as we have corporate fellowship with Jesus himself. Going beyond that, I can't do it. Now, Phil Widener is an elder in this church. Perhaps we should ask Phil. You don't want to have any comments. You don't want to take the platform. I can tell. You don't want to dominate. So, okay. Any other question? Any other question before we get going? Well, first, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. I can't hear you. Give me a chance, Darren. How many of you know this man who's speaking to me right here? This is what? Darren, what's his last name? Ru, Ru, Ru. Come on. What's his last name? Russo. Go ahead. No, but I know that would be one thing that would be interesting when uh, Matt here said that in reference to there's three wheels, I could understand how you can understand. But one thing I would, would have wanted to know is that you could see the father and the son separate will, you know, when he said, you know, nevertheless, your will. So you could see those two wheels. 
But I don't know where, where you bought the Holy Spirit in. Not like I got the answer. Yeah. Well, when Matt said three wills, Mike, you were looking at me. You probably saw me do, do this a little bit. Because that's a whole other understanding. So we'll just say it this way. <laughs> you turn you. Um, we'll say it this way. There is one will in God. There is no such thing as even a possibility that one member, person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of the Godhead has a different will to any extent at any time whatsoever. Do we get that? Is that clear? Each person of the Trinity possesses absolutely forever without any contradiction comprehensively the same will. Now that settles that matter, correct? Jesus said, not my will, but your will. What happened? Someone says, okay, well, he's talking not as a member of the Trinity in and of itself disassociated from the creation. He's talking about this man. This man knows the Father's will. Absolutely, Karen, there's no questioning. Um, I wonder what you want me to do. Do we get that? But when he begins to face, and listen how I'm going to say this, the terror the hideousness of the coming cross and wrath of God. He is shocked. It is overwhelmingly worse than he in his humanity could ever have imagined until the closer he gets to it, the closer you get to a fire, the more you feel what? The flames. So he's shocked. And when this, and I'm going to emphasize his humanity, this man comes to the garden. And remember, in the garden of Gethsemane, this is, in my mind, the cosmic battle of all eternity. Not the cross. There's no battle at the cross. There's payment at the cross. There's payment at the cross. But the battle as to creation and the fall. And God's purpose to restore the battle cosmically occurs in the Garden of Eden. I'm sorry, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where one man and all of us in him, as our representative, one man battles against 
not only the temptation to look at that tree over there and isn't it nice? But the worst battle any man could ever face, facing the wrath of God, facing and experiencing the holiness of this God as if this man were himself a sinner. I mean, he's not a sinner, but he bears our sin. He's wearing it. And he's going to be treated, if you would, as if he is a sinner. And when he experiences that increasingly, because remember, even before the last dinner they had, the supper, he begins to be visibly changed in the sight of his disciples. And he says, now is my soul what? What? Burden even unto death. Dane, they never heard this man say this kind of thing. And I don't know what it was like at the table. But I think perhaps this man who has been the rock through every attack, every difficulty facing winds and waves triumphantly, be silent. Facing the attacks of the Pharisees and the, all everything. He, he stood as a monument of strength. But now, he begins to change. And for the first time, this man begins to experience what it really means. And in Hebrews 10, we read what? In verse 28, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, Carolyn, he's beginning to get that personally. And he's beginning, I think, to change. Well, yes, he does that marvelous teaching in those chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 in the prayer of John. But something is changing. Something's changing. So his will as a man, Darren, is to say, now remember, he knows the will of God. Flo, he knows God's, the Father's will. There's no question about that. Ben, he's not trying to figure that out. Melanie, he's just not trying. He knows it. But Joseph, what does he say? Father, I know you will. Is there any possibility that I don't have to go to the cross? Is that a lack of faith? Donnie, is that a lack of faith? No. That's a question that is understandable given the circumstances. But then what does he say? This is terrible. I'm shocked. I'm, 
I'm terrified. Not terrified to die, yes, in this way for this, you know, because of our sin. He's terrified. But then he says what? Nevertheless. Nevertheless, what? Your will be done, Father. Then what happens after three hours of this? Remember Luke? He's, blood's pouring from him. Remember in Mark, it doesn't say Jesus knelt down. This, this picture of Jesus that's a crazy drawing. It's in the continuous tense. He kept on falling to the ground. He get up, he's stumbling around, he's falling, he's collapsing to the ground. Why? Because he is beginning to experience the foothills of the wrath of God. And even in the foothills, Mary, even when the foothills, he's collapsing. He's collapsing. But he knows for this purpose I have come into the world. Right? So he sets aside his human desire and submits to the Father's desire. Let me say one more thing. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve was presented the temptation. Adam is probably right next to her. Rather than telling the serpent, shut your mouth and get out of here. The husband didn't say anything. He didn't exercise his authority over Satan. His dominion. Remember that dominion? And Satan said, Look away from this man God who's been walking with you. This, this God who has taken on physical form walking with you in the garden. You remember that? You, you read that? And look away from him and look to the prohibited tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because you've already been told not to eat of it. Remember Genesis 2.17? Because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It didn't say you might die. You're going to die. You surely shall die. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul comments about that. You remember in 2, 5, he says, have this, what, attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, being in the form of God. You remember that, those words? It says, he did not, what word did it use? Say it again, I can't hear you. One more time. He did not grasp at divinity. Why did he use that, Ian? Because what did Eve do? She grasped. I want that. I want that. He undid in the 
second garden, what Eve and Adam together did in the first. Do you see it? That's your answer, I think, at least as far as I can go with it, Darren. Any questions? Anything else? Okay. Well, I think it's pretty clear that we're not going to get through the whole lesson today, but let's look at some of what we want to talk about. For the last couple of weeks, Matt Bellarina has been sharing with us some thoughts about the Trinity. And what we don't want to do is to disconnect our understanding of what the Bible says from beginning to end that God is one in his essential being. There's only what? One God. What does Deuteronomy 6 4 say? Now, come on, somebody say it. Hear, O Israel, what? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the word one there is what Hebrew word? We've taught this before. Echad, E-C-H-A-D. Echad. Remember in Hebrew, it's like, <coughs> clearing your throat. Not echad. It means, it has a couple of different meanings and applications. It means one and only. Is that true? God is one and only, Mike? But it also has another meaning. It's a collective noun. Do you know what I mean by a collective noun? You see, I told you, listen to your English teacher. What is a collective noun? It is a noun in the singular which, what? Collects into it more than one. Is that easy? So it's a noun that is singular in use, but its meaning is two or more. So the Navy are or the Navy is? Which one? Is. The Navy is whatever. It's a collective noun, right? Am I all right so far? So even in that early Hebrew testimony, that affirmation, which is probably the most significant affirmation that the Jewish people had as an affirmation of what they believed about God. God is one. He is a plurality as one. He is three, but he's still what? One. How to understand that? I can't help you on that, kid. So we've learned this, that God exists eternally, unchangeably, in himself being one being, but three equal Distinct, co-eternal, divine persons, substances. Remember, homo weus. Which means this, that each member of the Trinity is fully and forever God in himself but not by himself. So Jamal, what do you say? The father is fully God, what? 
in himself, but not by himself. Did I disturb you? I'm sorry. The Son is fully God in himself, but not by himself. The Spirit is fully God, come on, in himself, but not by himself. Each person, typically this is what is said, and I'm going to adjust my thought here. Each person of the Godhead, each, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, shares the same divine essence. I don't like that because how many of you know that when you tell your children to share something, it's not equal? Y'all share the toys, and one, one of them has 90% of the toys, and the other two or three have the other. No, each person fully possesses in himself every divine attribute simultaneously, comprehensively in himself. So that whatever, and this will bring us to Ephesians, whatever one person of the Trinity does, and this is very important for us to understand as far as our grasp of the functionality of God and how we perceive and walk in faith with this God. So that whatever one person of the Trinity does, whatever that role is, the other two persons are fully involved, yet differently involved. Does that make sense to you? And we'll find out in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, that the full, whole, entire Trinity is always involved in every, absolutely every work or aspect or activity of any one of the persons. Because what happens is this. Typically, and I understand this, but we need to adjust it. Typically, Christians want to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Great. But we have to be careful that in that work of the Holy Spirit, where is the Father? Where is He? In the work. Where is the Son? In the work of the Son dying on the cross. Where's the Father? Involved in that work. Where's the Son? I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit, where? Involved in the work. So can it be possible that any member of the Trinity work unilaterally? You know what I mean by that? On his own. Can it be possible? No. And so what we... What I felt the Holy Spirit give me when Matt was teaching was, I want you to go into these 14 verses in Ephesians chapter 1 to begin to biblically identify what you have been saying about the Trinity to a limited extent because these verses are not an exposition, if you would, of the Trinity in a full way. 
they just give us a sketch of the role of each person of God in which the other two persons are fully involved, yet differently involved. So the persons of the Trinity are equally involved in the work of the Trinity. Do we see that? But differently. Are we okay with this? Are we okay? Notice that the Father doesn't die on the cross. Notice that the Holy Spirit isn't the one who calls us into his family, initiates that call. Are we okay in that? I don't want to go any further unless we're okay because it's not constructive to move along if the foundation isn't that solid. Hey, oh, I thought you were waving to me, Gail. I'm sorry. Okay, here comes the school teacher again. I'm worried about school teachers. Go ahead. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Do the other parts of the Trinity feel the anguish that the son was feeling? <clears throat> okay, thank you for your question. Now, let's move along. The, I'm going to say it like this. The soul suffering of the son. During his entire incarnate life on earth. Becoming accentuated in his passion and death. Are you following me? I haven't come clear on this yet. But in some way. Obviously, the divine nature in this man. Remember, the human nature and the divine nature come together in unity. They don't become part of one another. They remain distinct, yet they are existing and functioning together in this one man. You see how much there is to talk about. I mean, this. so when this man is experiencing this, in some way, obviously, I think the Son of God is experiencing it. Wouldn't you say so? How that translates into what the Father and the Holy Spirit are experiencing, I'm not yet there. Do you know? Not yet? Okay. And it gets us into another area of theology, and I'm not going to even use the word. Remember, we've talked about this. Because it's going to throw you off unless we have adequate teaching. And I don't want to use a word that will completely throw you off. It's, it's a term that is used to understand theologically what is going on in the Godhead. But it's a term which is going to mislead because of its use in the secular world differently than perhaps it is used theologically. Does that make sense? Are you okay with that? We may get into it later on. That's your job for later on. Great. Thank you. Now, I, I, I like this idea that I had the mic. <laughs> but we do know this. And, and Gail, it's a great question. It's a very important question. Significant. So I'm not demeaning it because if I do, I'm demeaning God himself. I wouldn't do that. But I do want to say that. But the significant purpose 
for us today and in this time until we get into that is to know this. In, I believe, in the soul suffering of the Son of Man, he gathers up the soul suffering of all of his people that ever exist. And I believe that part of what's going on here is that he is experiencing in himself such soul suffering that has collected all of what we have ever experienced being under the domination and impurity and devastation and hideousness of sin. That's my thought at this point. Okay. Well, he had his hand up first, but no, no, we'll go to the old bird first. Sorry, yell it out. I can't hear you. S-O-U-L. Not sola. Soul suffering. I want you to think about this. The soul suffering of the Son of Man for us and on our behalf because of us in order to redeem us. Amen. Ron, you had a question? Just a comment. Yeah. That is, I found very helpful a book that you referred me to entitled The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bruce Wayne. I did not remember the author. It's out of print. It's out of print. Well. So if anybody want to look at this book, and it is very good, you're going to have to talk to Ron. Okay. Anything else? What I would. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, what? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Every time we study anything and everything in the Bible, however, some things are clear about this. But I maintain everything and anything in the Bible is only partially revealed to us. Would you, would you agree with that? I don't think there's anything that God has revealed about himself in relation to us in the fall is complete in itself. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 is what he said. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And if you don't know it, write it down. Must underpin, Todd's right, everything that we study and read and ask the Holy Spirit, would you give us revelation? Correct? Would you give us revelation? But then... Allow the Holy Spirit to make the choice of what, how much, when, and whatever. He's going to give you the revelation. Or even if 
He's going to give you the revelation, correct? And so there will be, most of these doctrines are only going to be given to us partially for several reasons, one of which obviously is we have a finite capability and we're talking about infinite reality. Right, Pharaoh? And so there ain't no way you can squeeze the infinite into the finite. And so let's, let's remember that. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much for that. But it's adequate. It's complete. It's all that we need. Oh, Michael. Can you tell this is Matt's daddy? It's absolutely sufficient. So what verse did we just kind of quote? Deuteronomy 20? Yeah, but what, what verse did Mike just kind of give us a hint about from the New Testament? Adequate, sufficient. Say it. I don't know. Just go ahead and say it. Yeah, I understand how that is. Everything. We have given, been given everything necessary for life and godliness. Somebody said that to someone at some time. Who, where, where, where's that from? First Peter. Chapter 1. Well, you're going to have to look it up. Everything necessary for life and godliness, what? has been given us. That's what Mike just put in different words. Well, thank you so much for being here. Please stay safe in this very different time of the year and come back next week because we want to go begin to go through these verses to see the astounding presence and work of our triune God who has decided to save us for his glory. Amen.